0: All right, so two weeks ago, we looked at the miraculous healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And so after being crippled for 38 years, Jesus said to him, and I quote, get up, take up your bed and walk, and that is exactly What he did, the Lord gave the command and it says in verse nine that at once, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. And as I said two weeks ago, after being crippled for 38 years, you know, later on, this guy didn't just walk. I bet you he ran down the street. I bet you he jumped up and down. I bet you he even danced. Why? Because he was so excited that, man, I've been lying around um, for 38 years, and look what's happened to me. He was excited, but not everybody was so excited. If you remember the religious leaders, see him carrying his bedroll, and they scolded him for breaking their man-made rules. They said, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to be carrying around your bed. And so God gave Israel the Sabbath, by the way, the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, um, um, from sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday, God gave the Sabbath to Israel as a blessing But the religious leaders, they attached all these man-made rules to the Sabbath so that the day of rest actually became this legalistic burden. And so these religious leaders are like, hey, you can't carry your bed around. It's the Sabbath day. And he looked at them and said, yeah, but the guy who healed me, he told me to do that. And they were like, well, who was that? And he didn't know Jesus' name. Now, two weeks ago, we left off in verse 13. So, church family, what verse are we picking it up at right now? 14. All right, so if you're looking at John 5, 14, just say amen. amen. Afterward, Jesus found him. Jesus found how, how many of you are glad that Jesus goes after us? Amen. I love it, I love it, I love it. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See? You are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, ever since Adam and Eve sinned and the fall occurred, life has been filled with tragedy, filled with illness, filled with death. So, before we deal with Jesus' specific words to this specific man, I need to make sure I give you this general principle right here, and that is since we are finite human beings with limited knowledge, we should never assume that a particular illness is the result of personal sin or lack of faith, sometimes illness is the result of living in a fallen world. Now, I just gave you the general principle, and we're gonna come back to that here in a little while, but you need to know that in this specific situation, this specific situation that we're reading about right here, Jesus did link this man's illness with some past sin in his life, and that leads you to this point right here. I want everybody to please say sometimes. sometimes. Okay, get that. Sometimes deliberate sin does lead to illness. Now we see this in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In Numbers chapter 12, when Miriam and Aaron spoke out against, criticized Moses, they spoke out against Moses in a very serious way. Listen, God struck Miriam with leprosy for seven days. And somebody says, well, that was the Old Testament, but, but God changed when you get to the New Testament. No way. Have you guys ever heard of the immu- immutability of God? What does that mean? That means God doesn't change. God said, I am the Lord. I do not change. God was just as loving in the Old Testament as he was in the New Testament because he's the same God. God. God was just as holy in the New Testament as he was in the Old Testament because he's the same God. And when you get to the New Testament, you come across a couple. They're they're called Ananias and Sapphira. And what happened to them? What happened to them in Acts chapter five is that they secretly kept back part of the proceeds of the sale from their land and then they lied about how much they sold it for and they acted in front of the whole church like they were giving everything they made off the land, which is hypocrisy and lying, and what did God do? God struck them both dead in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, during the Lord's Supper, when some were being selfish and others were coming to the communion table drunk, The Apostle Paul said, and I quote, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. In 1 John chapter five, verse 16, John John wrote about, quote, a sin that leads to death. And so yes, sometimes, can you guys say the word sometimes? Sometimes deliberate sin does lead to illness. In this specific situation, in John chapter 5, verse 14, since there is a link between the man's illness and some past sin in his life, Jesus goes to him and finds him and warns him. Why does Jesus warn him? Moms and dads, the same reason why you, you warn your toddler um, not to put their hand up on the stovetop. Jesus warned him because he loves them. And he said to him in verse 14, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, having said all of that, I have to stress that not all illness is the result of personal sin. And so in John chapter nine, the disciples, they see a man who's been blind since birth. And the disciples look at Jesus and they say, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus looked at his guys and he said, and I quote, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he went and Jesus gave sight to the man who was blind which by the way is more evidence that he was and is the son of God. And by the way, Isaiah prophesied 700 years BC that when God comes, Isaiah 35, five, one of the evidences that you're gonna know he's arrived is that he's gonna give sight to the blind. Jesus did that. And so Jesus said to his guys, guys, it was neither this man nor his parents that sinned. Now the classic example in the Bible of the fact that not all illness is the result of deliberate sin, is the example of Job. So if you're new to the Bible and you open it up to the middle and you see right before Psalms that there's a book, it's not called Job, it's called Job. And it's a great book, you should read it sometimes. The first two chapters will absolutely blow you away. And so in the book of Job, You have this this guy, and after all the tragedies that happened to him, including loathsome sores from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, he's sitting on an ash heap, and he's scraping his skin with a broken piece of pottery, no doubt because his sores itched. And right then, his wife walks up to him and says, are you still holding fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Guys, how would you like to be married to her, right? (laughs) Curse God and die. And then his so called friends added to his misery. Because why? Because for so long in the book, what do they keep saying? You must have sinned, Job. You must have sinned, and that's why you're suffering. But they were wrong. The reality was that none of them, including Job, were privy to the cosmic conversation that took place between God and Satan and that God had allowed Satan to cause those tragedies to prove to Satan that Job would remain faithful to God, that Job would not charge God with wrong despite all the difficulty that he was going through. Here's the truth. Job's so-called friends didn't have a clue. They did not have a clue. Why? Because they were mere mortals. They had limited knowledge. Let's be very careful about the judgments we make about other people. And so here's the principle again because I want to have it up there twice to make sure everybody's on the same page. Since we're finite human beings with limited knowledge... We should never assume that a particular illness is the result of personal sin or lack of faith. Sometimes illness is the result of living in a fallen world. And how many of you are happy that even in a fallen world, God is sovereign? How many of you are happy that even in a a, a fallen world, listen to this, all things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are the called, according to His purpose. That's the truth. And like I said, two weeks ago, if you're here or you're watching and you're suffering from some illness, and God chooses not to heal you in this life. If you are a born-again believer, man, your future is so bright. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, one day you're gonna experience the ultimate healing. One day you're gonna receive a new body. You're gonna live on a new earth earth you're going to live within a brand new universe why because jesus christ hung on the cross and he bled and he died to pay for our sins and then he rose again not just for our personal redemption but to redeem all creation god's a good god he's a great god and we should worship him so jesus warns the guy because he loves him sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And then this guy does something really odd. He does something really odd unless you're familiar with uh, the fact that these religious leaders in the first century had such a strong influence over the people that they led. In other words, these guys abused their power. What this guy who just got healed does is really, really odd unless we understand the power and intimidation that the religious leaders held over the people. And so now let's look at verse 15. It says that the man went away. This is the guy that Jesus just healed, the guy who was crippled for 38 years, the guy that Jesus said, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Verse 15, the man went away and he told the Jews. Now when you see the word, uh, the words, the Jews, in John five, is talking about the religious leaders, right? The pompous, arrogant, legalistic religious leaders. It's not talking about you know, all Jews. Jesus was a Jew, his apostles were Jews, thousands of Jews came to Christ in the first century. These are religious leaders, and so this man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And you read that and that, you're like, that's odd? Jesus has healed you from being crippled for 38 years? Verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the, what day? And so this man knew the religious leaders were angry with him. He, they looked at him, they scolded him. Hey, you can't carry your bedroll on the Sabbath day. And he knew he could be the recipient of some negative consequences down the road and he was afraid of these guys. So I think, here's my take, in order to avoid getting in trouble with these guys, he told on Jesus. It was Jesus, he's the one who healed me, and that led the religious leaders to persecute the Lord since they didn't think Jesus should be healing on the Sabbath day. You're healing, and that's working, Jesus. You're not allowed to do that. Do you guys see what religion does to people's heads? I mean, are you kidding me? I think personally, Jesus purposely healed people on the Sabbath while the religious leaders were around because he liked stirring things up. I think Jesus was a nonconformist in that, in that way. You remember, the, oh, he goes over to a Pharisee's uh, house for dinner on the Sabbath, and there's a man there who has this unusual swelling, some versions call it the dropsy, and what does Jesus do? On the Sabbath, he heals this guy, and then he looks at the religious leaders, and he says, which of you, if you had an ox, and your ox, your animal, fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't pull the ox out of the pit? In other words, hey, you'll help your animal on the Sabbath. I can't help this guy who's got a problem with swelling in his body, and so be careful. This is why this church is not about religion, this church is about Jesus. So important that you get that. And so, what we're gonna do for the remainder of our time is we're gonna look at Jesus' fascinating discourse with these religious leaders. Now, what I I wanna do for the remainder of our time is I wanna pull out three truths, three truths about who Jesus is, what he's done in the past, what he's gonna do in the future, and why we should honor the Son. Now, there's no way I can get to everything. Otherwise, we would be going through John literally for five years. Okay, so we're gonna get a lot done here today but I really wanna encourage you guys to be reading, meditating on the scripture um, on your own, okay? Right now, if you're looking at John chapter five, verse 17, say amen. amen. All right, so here we go. They're mad at him because he's doing these things, these healings on the Sabbath. Jesus says in verse 17, my father is working until now. Notice, my father, And so the blood right now is rising in the bodies of these religious leaders. They're like, what? My father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself what All right so that leads us to our first point and that is that Jesus Christ ladies and gentlemen is the God is God the Son who is equal with God the Father Now what we're doing here and I always got to be like so careful right what we're doing here is we're dealing with Christology the two most important doctrines Christology soteriology the doctrine of Christ the doctrine of salvation you can't get Those two things wrong. So we're talking about the Jesus of the Bible. And the Jesus of the Bible is God the Son who is equal with God the Father. Okay, so some people think, all right, so there's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's God the Holy Spirit. Pastor, does that mean that there's three gods? And the answer is no. (laughs) No, through the progressive revelation of the scriptures, here's the truth right here. We believe there is, please shout it out. Mono. Don't mess that up. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. Okay, I have to use the word there, but it's true. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We believe in one God, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we're learning about the Father and Son now. We're going to learn about the Holy Spirit when we get to chapters 14 through 16. And so Jesus said in verse 17 to the religious leaders, my Father is working until now, and I am working. And so what you need to know is that God is the creator of all life. But he's not just the creator of all life. He is also the sustainer of all life. And that requires work. God is the creator and sustainer of all life. And in him, all things in the universe hold together. Not just six days a week, but every day of the week, including the Sabbath day. If God took off one day, if God took off one minute, this world of ours would turn from intricate design and order to mass destruction and mass chaos. And so, aren't you glad that he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleep? <laughs> Our lives depend upon it. And so, here's the truth the Father doesn't take any time off, and the Son doesn't take any time off either. Look at what Paul said about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, for by him, the Son of God, all things were created. Look, you gotta believe in the Jesus of the Bible because the false is out there in the false religions can't save anybody's soul. Believe in the true Christ, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things. What's the last two words there? All right, so if the Son of God is literally holding all things together every single day, including the Sabbath, shouldn't he be allowed to heal on the Sabbath? Yeah. And by the way, didn't he say, I am the Lord of the Sabbath? Yeah, Mark chapter 2, verse 28. And so that's why he says in verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, verse 18. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jewish religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and they wanted to kill him for it. Why? They thought it was blasphemy. Now, Somebody in this room, maybe somebody watching, might be thinking right now, okay, pastor, if I lived back then, I wouldn't wanna kill Jesus. But nonetheless, I can accept him as a great teacher of morals and religion. But God, I can't accept him as God. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly who he claimed to be. I can't wait till we get to John chapter eight. And because when we get to John chapter eight, Jesus is gonna say something to the religious leaders that's gonna make their heads explode. Jesus is gonna say to the religious leaders, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, so a thousand years before Jesus, you have King David. 1,500 years before Jesus, you have Moses. Moses. And 2,000 or so years before Jesus, you have Father Abraham. And Jesus tells the religious leaders, before Abraham was, I am using the same title for God that God gave Moses at the burning bush. And you know what the religious leaders did? Picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. Of course, Jesus claimed to be God. And I know I overuse this quote. I know I use it probably three times a year. But it's so good, I'm putting it up again. C.S. Lewis said this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Well, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, like right here in John chapter five, (laughs) would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. And so of course, C.S. Lewis made famous The phrase, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord of all. If you believe he's Lord of all, why don't you put your hands together right now and let him know that you think he's Lord of all. He is. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Okay, so greater works than these. What could be greater than healing a guy who's been crippled for 38 years? Well, the answer to that question is in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father... Judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Do you, do you see, feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here? I heard a guy on TV not too long ago, um, and um, you would all know his name if I, if I said his name, but he said, you know, Jesus is like Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the prophets in the Old Testament would never say what Jesus is saying in John chapter five. And so feel the weight of what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders. Verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And right here, their heads are about to explode. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, okay, so just so you know, hears my word is synonymous in this context with believes my word. All right, so what did, what did, what did Jesus say back in John three sixteen? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes trusts in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, so truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears, believes my word, and believes in him who sent me, that's the Father, that Jesus talked about in John three 16, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. These are weighty words, these are true words, and again, If Jesus is not the Lord of all, they need to get a straitjacket. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Did you hear what he just said? The Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. All right, so here's your second point. Jesus Christ has life in himself and gives life to the dead. He has life in himself and he gives life to the dead. All right, so let's start with his claim that he has life within himself. That's in verse 21 and verse 26. All right, so let's look at verse 21. He says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And then now in verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the truth. The eternal Son of God has life within himself. It's called, theologians call this the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y. The, uh, Dr. Geisler gives a great definition for the aseity of God. Aseity comes from the Latin aseite, meaning literally of oneself. Used of God, it denotes that, listen to this, he exists in and of himself. Independent of anything else, he is self-existent. Can you guys please say self-existent? That's our God. He is an uncaused being. We learn from the cosmological argument that everything that begins has a cause. The universe had a beginning, Therefore the universe has a cause. The universe is finite, therefore its cause must be, thank you, infinite. The universe is natural, therefore its cause must be supernatural, thank you. And he's not an it, he's a he. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, every effect has a cause. And you cannot have an infinite regresses. Uh, you cannot have an infinite regress of causes and effects. There must be a first cause. There must be an uncaused cause. who's self-existent, who has life within himself, who's the source of all life. He's God. It's God. And you might say, well did God cause himself? No, because ontologically, you can't be prior to yourself. He's eternal. You say, Pastor, why are you getting all this theology? Because I want you to have an accurate view of who God is so that we're not always thinking about, what can Jesus do for me? But we can walk out of here saying, he's so awesome, I gotta worship him every minute of every day of my life. I want you to know God. I want you to know all about him. I want you to understand how awesome he is. And yeah, he gives good gifts to his children, but man, church can't always be about what can Jesus do for me to help me fulfill my dreams. Please, give me a break. What can you do to die to yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus Christ? Christian, that's the question. And so, in verse 21, Jesus said, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Son, think, think about this, don't check your brain at the door when you come to church. The Son gives life to whom he will. And so the only way someone can give life is if he's the source of all life. And in order to be the source of all life, he must be an uncaused, self-existent being, i.e. God. We already learned this in the opening words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was he was in the beginning. He was in the be- he was in the beginning. He was already there before the creation of the space-time material universe. He was already there. Why? He's eternal. Verse three, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made." Here it is. John 1:4: "In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And thank God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so once again, Jesus says in verse 21, as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. We know from the gospels that Jesus raised at least three people from the dead. Do you guys remember this? So you have the widow's son in Luke chapter seven. Jesus walks up, there's a funeral procession, there's a widow, she's crying, she's distraught. She's a widow, that means her obviously her husband's dead. Apparently she only has one son. In those days, man, she's in trouble, there's no source of income for her. And guess what? Jesus loves her, so what does he do? He stops the funeral procession and raises her son from the dead. Christ has power. Jairus' daughter, Mark 5, Lazarus, whenever we get to John 11 in two years, we'll see that, it's awesome. All right, so those three miraculous signs were amazing, and here's the thing, they anticipated the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. And so those three resurrections there up on the screens, they were resurrections back to mortal life. In other words, the widow's son Um, after Jesus raised him from the dead, he lived and then he died. He was raised to mortal life. Same with Jairus' daughter, same with Lazarus. And so those three resurrections were resurrections back to mortal life. But one day, praise the Lord, all who are in their tombs are gonna hear the voice of the Son of Man and all of them are gonna come out for the future resurrection, immortal life. Now, we're looking forward to the physical resurrection. But did you know that Jesus didn't just speak of a future physical resurrection? Did you know that he spoke of a spiritual resurrection right now? Look at this. Look at verse 25. Maybe you missed it. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And so the Lord said, Jesus said, "An hour is coming." He's talking about the future physical resurrection of the dead. But then he said, "And is now and now is." Okay? And so that that, that refers to the present spiritual resurrection. And now is The Apostle Paul said this to the Christians at Ephesus. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were, please shout out the word, dead. dead. You go outside down the street, you meet someone who doesn't know Jesus. Physically, are they alive or dead? They're alive, they're walking around, they're talking. But spiritually, they're dead. And God loves that person. And so even when, he's talking to Christians here, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us, please shout out the word alive. Together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. Paul said to the Christians in Colossae, you who were, what? In your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made, what? Together with him, having forgiven us, how many sins? All of our trespasses. How many of you are glad that Jesus Christ's death on the cross, yeah, Jesus Christ's death on the cross, man, it was sufficient to forgive all our sins, past, present, and future. Regarding this verse, Spurgeon said this. You should read Spurgeon. It says, he said, it is true that he gave us life from the dead. He gave us pardon of sin. He gave us imputed righteousness. And by the way, that's not your righteousness. That's Christ's righteousness. These are all precious things, but we are not content with them. We have received Christ himself. The son of God has been poured out into us and we have received him. Man, you know what that means? That means when we were going our own way, doing our own thing, alive on the outside, dead on the inside, spiritually speaking, living for ourselves, that the Holy Spirit came after us. He wooed us. He drew us. How many of you guys know that you can't come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit is drawing and wooing and helping you come to Christ? And he's coming and we hear the gospel, the true gospel, and you find out I'm a sinner? Yeah, I am. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God? Yeah, it is. Man, I am so sorry for my sins. I need a savior. And then you hear the beautiful, awesome, good news that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was born of a virgin. He became man, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, went to a cross, and he hung on the cross, and as your substitute, I want you guys to please say the word substitute. substitute. So important. Hear the gospel. Man, my heart is crushed, because so many people say I'm a Christian like they say I'm an American. They don't even get the gospel. Jesus Christ hung on the cross as your substitute. And he took the wrath of God that you and I should have got in hell. He paid the price for our sins in full. He died in our place. And then he rose again the third day. And so you're like, praise the Lord. He died not just for the whole world, he died for me, it's personal. You change your mind about your sin, it's wrong. I need forgiveness. You change your mind about about, about yourself, I can't save myself. Change your mind about the savior. Believe what I just said about Jesus. And listen, you receive Christ. John 1, 12, as many as received him who believed on his name, he gave the right to be children of God. What does that mean? That means you're born of God. That means that spirit which was dead is now alive. Spiritual resurrection. Resurrection. And did you know that our spiritual resurrection is pictured in water baptism? I don't know if you knew that. That's why you hear some pastors when they're dunking somebody, they say this, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. I have new life. And so baptism is, outwardly pictures what's already happened when we got saved inwardly, which is a spiritual resurrection, the new birth. And so if you haven't been baptized, what's the word, church family? Since you received Christ. You say, I was baptized as an infant, I'm good. There's nothing in the Bible that teaches infant baptism. Baptism follows belief always in the Bible. So if you haven't been baptized since you received Christ as a Savior and Lord of your life, man, I encourage you to go to calvarypsl.com, click on next steps, scroll down to baptism, get baptized on May 5th, 630, first Thursday service. It is a commandment of the Lord. Now, if you're listening, say amen here. Amen. Baptism doesn't save us. It's the first step of obedience after we're saved. And so what does our spiritual resurrection guarantee? It guarantees that one day, we are gonna experience a physical resurrection. And so here's your last three verses, 27 through 29, and I'll make some concluding comments. So hang with me all the way to the end here. He's still sharing with the religious leaders. They're upset, their faces are red, they're angry. He says in verse 27, and he, the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of what? Judgment. So Jesus Christ will judge all mankind he has the authority to do this because he's called the son of man. That's who he is. Now, to Gentiles in the 21st century, that may not be a familiar title, but to first century Jews, that title meant everything, son of man. It should mean a lot to us as Christians. The term, the title, son of man, is derived from Daniel, 6th century B.C. And so Daniel it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the, what's his name? Son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Is anybody looking forward to this day? He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, who, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. When Jesus, at the end of verse 27, gave himself that title, son of man, in verse 28, the first thing he says is, don't marvel at this. Why? Because when he said, son of man, their mouths dropped open. (laughs) They were angry at him. They were astonished astonished. This Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter, this stonemason, this handyman from Galilee has the audacity to call himself the Son of Man, the Christ, the Messiah. And we say, "Yeah, yeah, praise the Lord, because that's who he is. That's the Lord we worship. That's him. And so, What's gonna happen in the end? What's gonna happen in the end, verse 28, is that the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs are gonna hear his voice. They're gonna come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Last week, I was very, very careful to make sure everybody understood that when Jesus talks about those who've done good go to everlasting um, life that we understand that we keep those words in the context of John chapter 5 verses before verses after we keep it in the context of the gospel of John we keep it in the gospel we keep it in the context of the new testament and the entire bible for that matter and so when you keep everything in this context you know Jesus was not teaching that someone can earn their salvation by doing good works it's not what he's saying at all if you weren't here last week, I want you to again hear the word, I want you to hear the, the word of God. Here it is. For by grace are you saved through faith and that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, eight, nine. And then verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, He's talking to Christians, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so I probably say it almost every week, but man, I'm gonna keep driving it and driving it, but here's the thing, I can say it till I'm blue in the face, but dear Holy Spirit, please speak to hearts. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, In Christ alone, apart from meritorious works, we cannot earn our way to heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, if salvation came by keeping the law, Christ died in vain. If you can go to heaven because you can work hard enough, why in the world did the Son of God come and die on a cross and rise again? And so we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from meritorious works, And then after we're saved, our faith is proven genuine by evidential works. There's evidence. There's fruit. And what's one of the evidences of our salvation? We honor the Son. And so Jesus Christ is God the Son, who is equal with God the Father. He has life in himself, and he gives life to the dead He will judge all mankind. Therefore, verse 23, we should honor the Son. Ladies and gentlemen, listen. Jesus said, if you dishonor the Son, you dishonor the Father. And so what do we have to do? We have to honor the Son just like we honor the Father. Amen?